Douglas Adams, which some of you may know from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy science fiction series, was born in 1952 in Cambridge, England, and he died very suddenly in 2001. And of all the things that he's best known for, his Hitchhiker's Guide and Dirk Gently's Detective Agency and all of these more common books, Last Chance to See was his favorite book that he wrote. Um, here's what the cover had to say. Um, in the Hitchhiker's Trilogy and the best-selling Dirk Gently novels, Douglas Adams has taken millions of fans on wild excursions through time and space. Last Chance to See continues the trip, but this time the place is Earth. The date is today, and every word is true. To read Last Chance to See is to take the trip of a lifetime with the ideal traveling companions. By turns hilarious, poignant, this book is a treat for Douglas Adams fans and a joy for anyone interested in the beauty and variety of Earth's wildlife. Now I'm going to read from the preface written by Douglas Adams. This book is about a series of journeys that Mark Carwardine and I went on to look for some of the world's rarest and most endangered animals, and one or two that aren't quite so endangered, but will be pretty soon if we don't watch out. Our trip to Madagascar was in 1985, and the others were made over a period of about 10 months in 1988 and 1989. All the trips other than one to Madagascar were recorded for BBC Radio. And Mark Carbodine went along as a zoologist, and then there was a BBC photographer who went on some of the trips, and the rest of the trips Douglas Adams photographed. And if you get the book out, you can see some of his photographs. The captions are worth almost more than the pictures are. Okay, so now we're going to jump to one of their trips, uh, I guess three years after they went to Madagascar. He and Mark Carbodine went to the Komodo Islands to see, learn about, photograph the Komodo dragon. And if you want to see them, I think Columbus Zoo has one now in their Indonesian area. The title of the chapter is Here Be Chickens. The first animal we went to look for three years later was the Komodo dragon lizard. This was an animal like most of the animals we were going to see about which I knew very little. What little I did know was hard to like. They are man-eaters. That is not so bad in itself. Lions and tigers are man-eaters, and though we may be intensely wary of them, we treat them with respectful fear. We nevertheless have an instinctive admiration for them. We don't actually like to be eaten by them, but we don't resent the very idea. The reason probably is that we are mammals, and so are they. There's a kind of unreconstructed species prejudice at work. A lion is one of us, but a lizard is not. And neither, for that matter, is a fish, which is why we have such an unholy terror of sharks. The Komodo lizards are also big, very big. There's one on Komodo at the moment, which is over 12 feet long and stands about a yard high, which you can't help but feel is entirely the wrong size for a lizard to be, particularly if it's a man-eater and you're about to go and share an island with it. Though they are man-eaters, they don't go to eat man very often, and more generally their diet consists of goats, pigs, deer, and such like. But they will only kill these animals if they can't find something that's dead already, because they are at heart scavengers. They like their meat bad and smelly. We don't like our meat that way, and tend to be leery of things that do. I was definitely leery of these lizards. Mark had spent part of the intervening three years planning and researching the expeditions we were going to make, writing letters, telephoning, 
but most often Telex thinks a naturalist working in the field in remote areas of the world, organizing schedules, letters of introduction, and maps. He also arranged all the visas, flights, boats, and accommodations, and then had to arrange them all over again when it turned out that I hadn't quite finished writing my novels yet. At last they were done. I left my house in the hands of the builders who claimed they only had three months more work to do and set off to fulfill my one last commitment, an author tour of Australia. I'm always very sympathetic when I hear people complaining that they, all they ever get on television or radio chats is authors talking on about their latest books. It does, on the other hand, get us out of the house and spare our families the trial of hearing us talking on about our latest books. Finally, that too was over, and we could start looking for giant lizards. We met up in a hotel room in Melbourne and examined our array of expeditionary equipment. We were Mark, myself, and Gaynor Shute, a BBC producer who was going to be reporting our exploits for a radio documentary series. Our equipment was a vast array of cameras, tape recorders, tents, sleeping bags, medical supplies, mosquito coils, unidentifiable objects made of canvas and nylon with metal, outlet, uh, metal eyelets, and plastic hooks, windbreakers, boots, pen knives, torches, and a cricket bat. None of us would admit to having brought the cricket bat. We couldn't understand what it was doing there. We phoned room service to bring us some beers and also to take the cricket bat away, but they didn't want it. The guy from room service said that if we were really going to look for man-eating lizards, maybe a cricket bat would be a handy thing to have. Did he survive, I asked, going straight for the point. So were there Komodo dragon were the Komodo dragons the origin of the Chinese dragon myths?
lives in Melbourne, a man who probably knows more about poisonous snakes than anyone else on earth. His name is Dr. Struan Sutherland, and he has devoted his entire life to the study of venom. Komodo. handed around the snake bite detector kits and the rock-hard fairy cakes and retreated back to his desk where he beamed at us cheerfully from behind his curly beard and bow tie. We admired the kits more than the cakes and asked him how many of the snakes he had been bitten by himself.
What? Gulliver's Travels, in which Gulliver had been tethered to the ground by the Lilliputians, 
and had dozens of tiny Lilliputian spears sticking into him. The images that the island presented to the imagination were very hard to avoid. The rocky outcrops took on the shape of massive triangular teeth, and the dark and moody gray-brown hills undulated like the heavy folds of a lizard's skin. I knew that if I were a mariner in unknown waters, the first thing I would write on my charts at this moment would be, here be dragons. Thank you. 
Now we're going to skip and go a little bit further um, east uh, to New Zealand, where Douglas and Mark went in search of a very rare bird called the kakapo. And the title of this chapter is Heartbeats in the Night, and we're going to skip around in that case. Um, if you took the whole of Norway 
scrunched it up a bit, shook out all the moose and reindeer, curled it 10,000 miles around the world and filled it with birds, then you'd be wasting your time because it looks very much as if someone has already done that. Fiordland is a vast tract of mountainous terrain that occupies the southwest corner of South New Zealand. And it's one of the most astounding pieces of land anywhere on God's earth. And one's first impulse, standing on a cliff top, surveying it all, is simply to burst into spontaneous applause. It is magnificent. It is awe-inspiring. The land is folded and twisted and broken in such a scale that it makes your brain quiver and sing in your skull, just trying to comprehend what it is looking at. Mountains and clouds jumbled on top of each other. Immense rivers of ice cracking their way millimeter by millimeter through the ravines. Cataracts thundering down into narrow green valleys below. It all shines so luminously in the magically clear light of New Zealand that to eyes which are accustomed to the grimier air of most of the Western world, it seems too vivid to be real. Until 1987, Fiordland was the home of one of the strangest, most unearthly sounds in the world. For thousands of years in the right season, the sound could be heard after nightfall through these wild peaks and valleys. It was like a heartbeat, deep, powerful throb that echoed through the dark ravines. It was so deep that some people will tell you they felt a stirring in their gut before they could even discern the actual sound, a sort of whoop, a heavy wobble of the air. Most people never heard it at all or ever will again. It was the sound of the kakapo, the old night parrot of New Zealand, sitting high on a rocky promontory and calling its mate. Of all the creatures we were searching for this year, it was probably the strangest and most intriguing, and also one of the rarest and most difficult to find. Once before New Zealand was inhabited by humans, there were hundreds of thousands of kakapos. Then there were thousands. Then there were hundreds. Then there were just 40 and counting. Here in Fiordland, which for many thousands of years was the bird's main stronghold, there are now thought to be none left at all. Don Merton, who came with us, knows more about these birds than anyone else in the world. And he came along with us partly as our guide, uh, partly because this flight to Fiordland gives him the opportunity to check one last time. Has the kakapo definitely gone? And it hadn't.
what they do. The, the male kakapo builds himself a track and bowl system, which is simply a rough, dug, shallow depression in the earth, with one or two pathways leading through the undergrowth toward it. The only thing that distinguishes the tracks from those that would be made by other animals blundering its way about is that the vegetation on either side of them is very precisely clipped. The kakapo is looking for good acoustics, which he does this, so the track and bull system will often be sighted against a rock facing out across a valley. And when the mating season arrives, he sits in his bowl and booms. This is an extraordinary performance. He puffs out two enormous sacks on either side of his chest, sinks his head down into them, and starts making what he feels are sexy grunting noises. These noises gradually descend in pitch and resonate in his two air sacks and reverberate through the night air, filling the valleys for miles around with the eerie sound of an immense heart beating in the night. The booming noise is deep, very deep, just on the threshold of what you can actually hear and what you feel. This means that it carries for a great distance, but that you can't tell where it's coming from. If you're familiar with certain types of stereo setups, you'll know that you can get an additional speaker called a subwoofer, which carries only the bass frequency, and which you can, in theory, stick anywhere in the room, even behind the sofa. The principle is the same. You can't tell where the bass sound is coming from. The female kakapo can't tell where the booming sound is coming from either, which is something of a shortcoming in a mating call. Come and get me. Where are you? hell are you? Come and get me. Look, do you want me to come or not? Come and get me. Oh, for heaven's sake. Come and get me. Go stuff yourself. It's roughly how it would go in human
Arab was their guide from New Zealand, a, uh, an old New Zealander, who also you'll hear him refer to Boss. Boss was Arab's specialized kakapo tracking dog. A thought, a thought struck me. We were lost because Boss's bell had stopped ringing. The same thought obviously hit Mark simultaneously, and we both suddenly called out, Have they got a cockapo? <laughs> the call came back. Suddenly, we were all in rambustuous bounding mode. With much shouting and hallooing, we clamored and slithered our way hectically across the floor of the gully, hauled ourselves up the other side and down into the next gully, on the far side of which, sitting on a mossy bank in front of a steep slope, was a most peculiar tableau. It took me a moment or two to work out what it was that the scene so closely resembled, and then I realized. I stopped for a moment and then approached more circumspectly. It was like a Madonna and child. Arab was sitting cross-legged on the mossy bank, his long, wet, grizzled beard flowing into his lap, and cradled in his arms, nuzzling gently into his beard, was a large, fat, bedraggled green parrot, standing by them in quiet attendance, looking at them intently with his head cocked to one side was Boss, still tightly muzzled. Duly hushed, we went up to them. Mark was making quiet groaning noises in the back of his throat. The bird was quiet and quite still. It didn't appear to be alarmed, but then neither did it appear to be particularly aware of what was happening. The gaze of its large, black, expressionless eye was fixed somewhere in the middle distance. It was holding lightly but firmly in its bill the forefinger of Arab's right hand, down which a trickle of blood was flowing, and this seemed to have a calming effect on the bird. Gently, Arab tried to remove it, but the cockapo liked it, and eventually Arab let it stay there. A little more blood flowed down Arab's hand, mingling with the rainwater, which everything was soggy. To my right, Mark was murmuring about what an honor it would be to be bitten by a cockapo, which was a point of view I could scarcely understand, but I let it pass. We asked Arab where he'd found it. The cockapo shifted itself very slightly in Arab's lap and pushed its face closer into his beard. Arab stroked its damp and ruffled feathers very gently. We stood back. Carefully, Arab leaned forward with the bird, his big, powerful claws stretched out and scrabbled for the ground even before it got there. At last, it let go of Arab's finger, 
steadied its weight on the ground, put its head down, and scuttled off. And I'd just like to read, to finish off, um, the, the afterword, the ep, uh, a portion of the epilogue written by Mark Carwardine after they got back. Was this really our last chance to see animals? Unfortunately, there are too many unknowns for there to be a simple answer. With strenuous efforts in the field, the populations of some have begun to rise. But it's clear that if these efforts were suspended for a moment, the Kakapos, the Yangtze River dolphins, and even the northern white rhinos and many others would vanish almost completely. There's probably little hope of saving the, uh, what, excuse me, uh, no one knows how many other species are this close to extinction. We don't know how many species of animals and the planets are together in the world. A staggering 1.4 million have been found and identified so far, but some experts believe that there are another 30 million yet to be discovered. It's not surprising when you consider that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about parts of our own planet. Many animals and plants are disappearing even before we are aware of their existence, perhaps hidden away in some of the depths of an unexplored sea or in a quiet corner of a tropical rainforest. Every animal and plant is an integral part of our environment. Even Komodo dragons have a major role to play in maintaining the ecological stability of their delicate island homes. If they disappear, so could many other species. And conservation is very much in tune with our own survival. Animals and plants provide us with life-saving drugs and food. They pollinate crops and provide important ingredients for many industrial processes. Ironically, it's often not the big and beautiful creatures, but the ugly and less dramatic ones that we need the most. Even so, the loss of a few species may seem almost irrelevant compared to major environmental problems such as global warming, or the destruction of the ozone layer. But while nature has considerable resilience, there's a limit to how far this resilience can be stretched. No one knows how close to the limit we're getting. The darker it gets, the faster we're driving. There's one last reason for caring, and I believe that no other is necessary. It's certainly the reason why so many people have devoted their lives to protecting the likes of rhinos, parakeets, cockapos, and dolphins. And it's simply this. The world would be a poorer, darker, and lonelier place without them.
facing hostile forces to do anything. And so uh, this, uh, this individual chapter itself deals with the uh, main message of the novel, which separates itself uh, more, not, not as an anti war novel, but more along the lines of a, a protesting against one patriotism that, uh, that comes under the war. Lying on your back without anything to do, anywhere to go, is kind of like being on a high hill far away from noisy people. It was like being on a camping trip all by yourself. You had plenty of time to think. You had time to figure things out. Things you know never thought of before. Things like, for example, going to war. You were so, you were so completely alone on your hill that noisy people didn't interest you with any of things at all. You figured only for yourself without considering a single thing outside yourself. It seemed that you thought clearer and that your answers made more sense. And even if they didn't make sense, it didn't matter because you weren't ever going to be able to do anything about them anyhow. You thought, here you are, Joe Bonham, lying like a side of beef all the rest of your life in Hawaii. Somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, come along, son, we're going to war. So you went. But why? And now you have to deal like buying a car or running an errand. You had the right to say, what's there in it for me? Otherwise, you'd be buying bad cars with too much money or running errands for fools and starving to death. There's a kind of duty you owe yourself that when anybody said, come on, son, do this or do that, you should stand up and say, look, mister, why should I do this or who am I doing it and what am I going to get out of it in the end? When a guy comes along and says, here, come with me and risk your life and maybe die or be crippled, why then you've got no right. You have any right to say yes or no, I'll take it over. There are plenty of laws for that guy's money even war time, but there's nothing in the book says a man's life is own. Of course, a lot of guys are ashamed. Somebody said, let's go out and fight for liberty, and Sony Wen got killed without ever once thinking about liberty. What kind of liberty would he find for anyway? How much liberty in whose idea of liberty? Would he find for the liberty of being free ice cream cones all their lives, or for the liberty of robbing anybody they pleased whenever they wanted to or what? And so a man who can't rob and take away some of his liberty. God be. What the hell does liberty mean anyhow? Just a word like house or table or any other word. Liberty is a special kind of word. A guy says house and you get close to a house. But a guy says, come on, let's fight for liberty, and you can't show you liberty. You can't prove the thing he's talking about, so how in the hell can you tell you to fight for it? No, sir, anybody who went out and got into the front line trenches to fight for liberty was a goddamn fool, and the guy who got in there was a liar. Next time anyone came and gambled to him about liberty, what did he mean the next time? He wasn't going to be there the next time. What the hell was that? If they could be the next time, and somebody said, let's fight for liberty, he'd say, mister, my life is important. I'm not a fool in what I fought my life for liberty. I've got to know in advance what liberty is and whose idea of liberty we're talking about and just how much of that liberty we're going to have. And what's more, mister, are you as much interested in this liberty as you want me to be? And maybe too much liberty will be, but if that's too little liberty, and I think you're a goddamn poor flush of talking to your hat. I've already decided I like the liberty I've got right here. The liberty to walk and see and hear and talk and even sleep with my girl. I think I like that liberty fair and fine for a lot of things you won't get and end up ending without any liberty at all. Ending up dead and lying before my life is easy on good or ending up like a side of beef. Thank you, mister. You fight for liberty. Me? I don't care for some. Tell us about our guys that always been fighting for liberty. America fought a war for liberty since 1776. Lots of guys died. And in the end, does America have any more liberty than Canada or Australia who didn't fight at all? Maybe so. I'm not arguing. I'm just asking. Can you look at a guy and say he's an American who fought for his liberty? Maybe anybody can see he's a very different guy from a Canadian who didn't. No, by God, you can't in that status. And maybe a lot of guys and wives and kids died in 1776 when they didn't need to die at all. They're dead now anyway. Sure, but that doesn't do any good. A guy can think of being dead a hundred years from now when he doesn't mind it. But to think of being dead tomorrow morning and to be dead forever through nothing but dust and stinking earth, is that liberty? Dear Wallace 
they hollered cowards. If they weren't fighting for liberty, they were fighting for independence, for democracy, for freedom, or decency, or honor, or their native land, or something else that didn't mean anything. The war was to make the world safe for democracy, for the world countries, for everybody. If the war was over now, then the world must be safe for democracy. Was it? What kind of democracy? How much? The whose? Then there was this freedom of war guys were also in so forth. Was it freedom from another country? Freedom from work or disease or death? Freedom from your mother-in-law? Please, mister, give us a bill of sale on this freedom before we go out and get killed. Give us a bill of sale on our plans so we know in advance what we're getting killed for. Give us also a first mortgage on something at security so we can be sure after we've won your war, we've got the same kind of freedom we've bargained for. And take decency. Everybody said America is fighting a war for the strength of decency. But who's the idea of decency? And decency for who? Speak up and tell us what decency is. Tell us how much better a decent dead man feels than an indecent live one. Make a comparison there to facts like houses and tables. Make it words we can understand. And don't talk about honor. The honor of a Chinese or an Englishman or an African Negro or an American or a Mexican. Please, all you guys who want to fight to preserve honor, let us know what the hell honor is. Is the American honor for the whole world we're fighting for? Maybe the world doesn't like it. Maybe the South Sea Islanders like their honor better. For Christ's sake, give us things fight for, we can see and feel and pin down and understand. No more high-flowing words than nothing like native land, motherland, fatherland, homeland, native land, it's all the same. What the hell gives you your native land after you're dead? Whose damn land is it after you're dead? If you get killed fighting for your native land, you bought a pig in a poke. You pay for something you'll never collect. But when they couldn't hope the little guys been fighting for liberty or freedom or democracy or independence or decency or honor, they tried the woman. Look at the dirty Huns, they would say. Look at them, how they raped the people. French and Belgian girls. Somebody's got to stop all that raping. So come on, little guy, join the army and save the beautiful French and Belgian girls. So the little guy got bewildered, and he signed up, and in a little while, a shell hit him, and his life splattered out of him, and the red meat told him he was dead. Dead for another word, and all the fierce old bat DAR get out and brought themselves force over his grave because he died for liberty. Now, it might be that a guy would risk getting killed if his women were being raped, but if he did, why? He was only striking a bargain. He was simply saying that, according to the way he felt at the time, the safety of his woman was worth more than his own life. But there wasn't anything particularly noble or heroic about it. It was a straight deal of his life for something he valued more. It was more or less like any other deal a man might make. When you change a woman for all the women in the world, why you begin to defend women in the bulk? To do that, you have to fight in the bulk. And by that time, you're fighting for a war again. When armies begin to move and flags wave and slowly pop up, watch out, little guy, because it's somebody else's chest that's going to fire, not yours. Words you're fighting for, you're not making an ideal your life for something better. You're being noble now because you're killed, you're thinking you're your life, but won't you do any good? The chances are it won't do any better than you either. Maybe that's a bad way to think. There are lots of ideals around who say, Have you got so low that nothing is more precious than life? Surely there are ideals worth fighting for, even dying for. If not, then we're worse than the beasts that are killed and have up sunken to barbarity. They say, That's all right, let's be barbarous just as long as we don't have war. You keep your ideals just as long as they don't cost me my life. They say, but sure, life isn't as important as principle. Then you say, oh no, maybe not yours, but mine is. What the hell is principle? Name it, you can have it. You can all appear to people who are willing to sacrifice somebody else's life. They're plenty loud and they talk all the time. You can find them in churches and schools and newspapers and legislatures and Congress. That's their business. They sound wonderful. Death before dishonor. This ground sanctified by blood. These men died so gloriously. They shall not have died in vain. Our noble dead. What did the dead say? Did anybody ever come back from the dead? Any single one of the millions who got killed? 
Can anyone ever come back and say, by God, I'm glad I'm dead because death is all that's better than dishonor? Did they say, I'm glad I died to make the world safer democracy? Did they say, I like death better than losing liberty? Can any of them ever say, it's good to think I've got my guts blown out for the honor of my country? Can any of them ever say, look at me, I'm dead, I died for decency, and that's better than being alive? Any, did any of them ever say, sure I am, I've been lying for two years in a foreign grave, but it's wonderful to die for a native land? Did any of them ever say, hooray, I died foolish, and I'm happy to see how I sing, even though my mouth is choked with worms? Nobody but the dead know whether all these things people talk about are dying or not. And the death can't talk. So the words about no more death and the shape of blood and honor and such all point to dead lips like grave robbers in the face who have no right to speak or dead. If a man says death before his honor, he's either a fool or a liar because he doesn't know what death is. He's a man to judge. No one knows about fooling. He doesn't know anything about dying. If he is a fool and believes in death before his honor, let him go and die. All more guys who are too busy to fight should be left alone. No one guys who say death before the sun is pure bold and the important thing is life before death, they should be left alone too. Because the guys who say life isn't worth living without some principle so important you want to die for it, they're all nuts. The guys who say you'll see there'll come a time you can't escape, you're going to have to fight and die because you'll mean your very life, why they are also nuts. They're talking like fools. They're saying that two and two make nothing. They're saying that a man wants to die in order to protect his life. If you agree to fight, you agree to die. Now if you die to protect your life, you aren't alive anyhow. So how is there any sense in a thing like that? Man doesn't say I'll starve myself to death to keep from starving. He doesn't say I'll spend all my money in order to He doesn't say I'll spend all my money in order to save my money. He doesn't say I'll burn my house down in order to keep it from burning. Why then should he be willing to die for the privilege of living? There ought to be at least as much common sense about living as dying as there is about going to the grocery store and buying a loaf of bread. And all the guys who died, all the five million or seven million or ten million who went out and died to make the world safer democracy, to make the world safer for words without meaning. How do they feel about it just before they die? How do they feel as they watch their blood pump out into the mud? How do they feel when they gasp at their lungs again, eating them all away? How do they feel as they lay crazed in hospitals or tests, strained to face the sun coming paper? If the thing they were fighting for was important enough to die for, then it was also important enough for them to think about it in the last minutes of their life. That's good, the reason. Life is awfully important, so if you get in the way, you don't have to think with all your mind in the last moments of your life about the thing you traded for. So that all those kids died thinking of democracy and freedom and liberty and honor and the safety of the home and the stars and stripes forever? You're goddamn right they do. That climbing the minds of the little babies. They forgot the thing they were fighting for, the things they were dying for. It's all about things a man can understand. They died yearning for the face of a friend. That whimpering for the voice of a mother, a father, a wife, a child. That was their heart sick for one more look at the place where they were born and God is one more look. They died moaning and sighing for life. They knew what was important. They knew that life was everything, and died with screams and sobs. They died with only one thought in their minds, and that was, I want to live. I want to live. I want to live. Yup, and yup. There's no sense in a dead man on earth. He's a dead man with a mind that can still think. He knew all the answers that the dead man couldn't think about. He could speak for the dead because he was one of them. He's the first of all the soldiers to die since the beginning of time who still had a brain left to think with. Nobody could dispute with him. Nobody could prove him wrong. Because nobody knew what he tell all these high-talking millions of sons of bitches to scream for blood just how wrong they were. He could tell the mister there's nothing worth dying for. I know because I'm dead. There's no worth worth your life. I'd rather work in a coal mine deep under the earth and never see sunlight and be crushed in water and work 20 hours a day. I'd rather be that than be dead. I'll trade democracy for life. I'll trade independence and honor and freedom and decency for life. I'll give you all these things and give you the power to walk, to see, to hear, and breathe the air and taste my food. He takes words. He 
asking back my life. I'm not asking for a happy life now. I'm not asking for an easy life or an honorable life or a free life. I'm beyond that. I'm dead, so I'm simply asking for life to live and feel. Be something that moves over the ground and isn't dead. I know what death is. You know these people who talk about dinosaurs don't even know what life is. There's nothing noble about dying. Not even if you die for honor. Not even if you die the greatest hero in the world that we saw. Not even, even if you're so great your name will never be forgotten and who's that great. The most important thing is your life, old guys. You have nothing dead except your speeches. Don't let them teach you anymore. Pay no attention when they tap you on the shoulder and say, Come on, you got to fight for living or whatever their word is, it's always a word. They say, Mister, I'm sorry I got no time to die. I'm too busy, then turn and run like hell. If they say, Coward, why don't pay any attention? Because it's your job to live, not to die. If they talk about dying for principles that are bigger in life, you say, Mister, you're a liar. Nothing is bigger in life. There's nothing noble in death. What's noble about lying on the ground and rotting? What's noble about never seeing the sunshine again? What's noble about having your legs and arms thrown off? What's noble about being an idiot? What's noble about being blind and deaf and dumb? What's noble about being dead? Because when you're dead, mister, it's all over. It's the end. You're less than a dog, less than a rat, less than a bee or an ant, less than a white maggot crawling around in a dunk. You're dead, mister, and you die for nothing. You're dead, mister.